Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello everyone, a very warm welcome. We're having this discussion this afternoon with Germany's new ambassador to the UK, Andreas Michaelis, who's been in post for just seven weeks. Ambassador, very warm welcome to the IFG. Thank you very much and I'm very happy to be here. Um, very happy to be here um, and thank you very much for having me. Not at all. Now, it's hardly quiet times that you've arrived in, and, and that's even before getting to the weekend's events, which we will get on to. Let me just uh, talk through some of the things that must be on your desk and are very much on the uh, British government's desk at the moment. Uh, on July 1st, in just a couple of days, Germany's going to take over the rotating six-month presidency of the Council of the European Union. That's the group of the 27 EU governments. And during this time, Germany is going to need to broker an agreement on the EU budget and the proposed uh, 750 billion euro coronavirus recovery fund. Germany has also promised to strengthen EU discussions on climate change and on foreign policy, particularly with China. And of course, what's on top of people's minds here is that this is the period when the EU will have to forge a new relationship with Britain through a deal or uh, maybe it will fail to uh, for, uh, have that deal and have to forge a relationship in its absence. And that is inevitably going to be at the forefront for you as ambassador here. So not a small agenda. Let me start, if you, um, if that's all right with you, with uh, the point that I came to last, which is on people's minds, and that is the Brexit negotiations. Been drowned out a bit by coronavirus, but they are coming up the agenda really very fast. How big an issue is this in the German presidency? Well, it's an important issue, uh, no question. Um, but uh, I think I have to say, uh, because we've discussed this in Berlin and Brussels for many weeks, um, our main focus right now has to be on the recovery of the economies of the European Union. That in an indirect way is also connected to the question of the future relationship with the United Kingdom because it has very serious and far-reaching economic implications. Uh, but what we have, and you have referred to it, what we have to achieve in the course of the next month, uh, in the course uh, uh, of July, uh, is really uh, uh, an agreement on a recovery fund and agreement on the uh, multi-annual financial framework, which basically is the budget of the European Union for the next seven years. So uh, Brexit and the economic impact of Brexit is not as uh, big a deal for the EU as proportionately it is for the UK, obviously. Um, but nonetheless, uh, you know, it could be damaging and would add to any damage done by coronavirus. Is there therefore more incentive than there was before the coronavirus uh, crisis to reach some kind of deal? Well, this is a British decision very clearly uh, to leave the European Union. And uh, we live with a situation that has not been finally defined in terms of the relationship now uh, for uh, many years, I can say, since 16. And uh, this is a job that really needs to be finished. I think that's very much the feeling on our side. And if I'm not mistaken, I'm only here for a couple of weeks. That's also the feeling on uh, the UK side. Uh, have we uh, made uh, and achieved the progress uh, we would have liked uh, to achieve and make during the last months? No, we haven't. 
Um, there's like substance ahead of us. I think we very much understand the positions of both sides, but we are entering now into a crucial negotiation phase. And it is crucial because we are basically uh, coming uh, to the end of the time frame, uh, which we have set ourselves for achieving an agreement. Usually uh, that adds to the dynamics, usually that adds uh, uh, to the progress which you achieve. It may be that so far, and I'm speaking and looking at both sides here, uh, we didn't give it the last push, uh, which you have to give it in order uh, to cross your own red lines, if there are red lines that can be crossed. So an agreement is not a question of atmosphere. It's not a question of style and tactics. It really is a question of substance. We know the way the UK looks at the substance of the negotiations and vice versa. So I think in the course of the next months, especially during September, you know, going the way to October, I think we stand a chance of uh, uh, making, making uh, 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 or arriving at that agreement, which would ideally under the present circumstances be a win-win situation. Thank you. And you very help helpfully sketched out what might be the timetable of this. So if things are still going on uh, in October, if these talks are still going on in October, this, this, isn't, um, this isn't too late. This might be uh, a still represent an achievable deal. Well, it hits uh, the bumper in October. Yeah, that's the way we look at it because uh, we have ratification procedures. Most likely it's a question of the nature of the agreement. Is it EU only or a mixed agreement? How, 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 much how many ratifications are involved uh, in this of all the 27? Um, but it will take time and the European Parliament also in any case, whatever kind of agreement will need time. Uh, uh, to look at it, uh, to look at the result of the negotiations, and it will be the heads of state and government certainly who have uh, uh, to deal with the uh, result that is being achieved by the chief negotiators before that. So if you put everything together, I think real realistically uh, we hit the bumper in October. Can you just take us into the ratification question a little bit? Because I think it, it's not always that well understood over here. How How difficult is it and how much time does it take up? Depends how clean uh, the negotiation result is. Uh, depends how clean the deliberations on the occasion of the relevant council meeting have been um, and whether national governments are in a position uh, to uh, represent uh, all interests that are relevant for ratification in their country. There can be surprises. I'm not mentioning individual countries, but there are some countries that have a relatively complex internal setup and when it comes to these countries, you know, we've seen in the past that a surprise may happen, but it shouldn't, given, given the, importance, uh, the importance of these negotiations. Because when at the beginning, you know, I didn't immediately jump to it and said, yes, hooray, uh, you know, uh, the future relationship that's number one on our list, it is first and foremost, because really we need, also in the interest of the UK, we need to deal with the economic impact of the crisis first and have to set things up so that we are not drowning in it. But the second is, and that's uh, you know, stating a clear objective uh, for our presidency to do a most responsible job here so there is no complacency uh, when it comes to the presidency. But by the same token, if we want to succeed in this, it has to be the chief negotiator, Banier, uh, who is the one that is supported by us and takes us over the finishing line. 
How big an obstacle um, is fish? We've heard this, uh, particularly in the past month or so, uh, that, 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 that this uh, issue, you know, small economically, uh, very big symbolically on both sides, uh, is one of several stumbling blocks. Is it your sense that, that both sides are actually moving forward past this? Yeah, that's a difficult question because in the past, fish has been difficult, <laughs> clearly difficult. And uh, it goes far beyond its uh, immediate uh, economic dimension for each and every country. Uh, we are counted as one of the of the eight coastal states. Um, but I think I'm doing justice uh, to our own country if I say that the fish issue by itself uh, is not an issue uh, that looms so large that it really, really shapes the way we look at the negotiations. Uh, it is an important element. And it's important for the negotiators, but from a national point of view, uh, it is one aspect of many uh, that need to be addressed. So that's very different in the case of some other member states uh, for whom this is an absolute core issue. And we have to take account of this. And we, acting in the presidency role, are moderators. You know, we have two roles. We continue to be a member state of the European Union with national interests, even in this phase. Uh, but first and foremost, I think as the presidency, we should and will act in a moderating role. So this is important, the way our fellow members in the European Union feel about it. So coming to your question, I think, you know, looking at the substance, but I can't go into details, um, I think it can be solved. It can be solved, um, but it needs to be embedded into a comprehensive solution. Uh, it will not be possible to deal with it and pocket it in isolation from other issues. Let's jump for a moment, if we may, to the um, uh, pessimistic uh, uh, possibility that there isn't uh, a deal at the end of the year. What is the German government advising German businesses to do? Have they started preparing already for that, that possibility of a no trade deal outcome? We've been in discussions with German business now for, I can say, years. And I've just seen a survey which was organized by, uh, let's say, the equivalent of CBI, uh, the BDI, uh, which is the Confederation of Large German uh, uh, Businesses, companies. Um, and when you look at uh, the feedback which they receive from their members, there is a vast majority of, of companies uh, and enterprises who uh, say thumbs up, we are prepared green light, more than 70% say, uh, we have done and taken the necessary steps uh, uh, which we need to take to be prepared. I think this is very different from the situation we were facing a year or two years ago. Um, because, you know, what, what, what I encounter, what I also encounter in the short period that I'm here uh, uh, in the UK uh, is, you know, some pessimism. I think there is pessimism uh, when it comes to the question of whether we achieve uh, a negotiated agreement around zero tariffs uh, and, and zero quotas. And I, personally, I believe that is still possible. That is possible. And uh, as the presidency, uh, it is our job uh, together with the negotiation, uh, with the negotiating team and the commission uh, to really make, make it possible. Yeah. Let's turn to the vision of uh, the EU without uh, the UK in it um, yeah. and um, what actually that means for the EU. And I would love to hear your thoughts on whether 
uh, the EU's, uh, the UK's exit has actually made it easier for the EU to forge ahead with some of its big schemes. For example, the Coronavirus Recovery Fund, which the UK might not have um, endorsed in quite uh, quite this form. I mean, it, it, where, where does the EU go now with uh, with the UK outside? If you allow me to to just take two steps back before I start to answer this question, and by two steps back, I mean uh, to look at the union before the corona crisis hit us, because we saw ourselves not in crisis, but, you know, seriously challenged by international developments. I think very clearly um, the rise of China, um, some irritations with regard to the transatlantic relationship, uh, some of the internal difficulties we were facing uh, inside the European Union within member states, but also uh, to some extent, even between uh, uh, member states. Um, so here we were, um, and we were very much already in a phase where we were looking uh, at uh, developing a program and objectives for our presidency. Mm -hmm. And uh, you may have looked at the interview which the Chancellor gave a number of uh, European uh, uh, papers uh, uh, at the end of last week. Uh, it's interesting to look at this interview, which was, I think, published uh, by The Guardian, uh, because uh, it shows that we are not just looking at the impact of the corona crisis, which mainly uh, 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 has uh, economic and, and financial implications. Uh, we would like to use this uh, uh, particular challenge in order to redefine some of the uh, fundamental flaws we have identified in the past, not to redefine the flaws, but to address the flaws and redefine uh, some of the main uh, instruments of the European Union. By this, I mean that we look at sovereignty, for instance. I think that that's very, very crucial. 90% of the core medic uh, med uh, medicines uh, which are needed in a crisis uh, uh, identified by WHO, 90% uh, of this arrives in Europe from India and China. So there is an enormous dependency. We were already looking at this question in different contexts of industrial policy before it. We were looking at it in a digital dimension because we were very much underperforming in Europe uh, uh, as far as digital infrastructure and dig digital networks are concerned, but also company performance in this field. So. While we were preparing the presidency, we were looking, without looking at Corona and its impact, we were trying to find a way how we can take the union forward. Now, what we would like to do now, and that's very important for those who are dealing with the, with the, with the, with the difficult decisions, because they will be costing a lot of money, which we have to take on the recovery fund, for instance, is that it is not just uh, about spending money uh, 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 to create uh, some activity and overcome, which of course also sometimes is justified, uh, uh, all the dangers of unemployment and recession in your economy. This should take the union forward. That's very much the German understanding and we will uh, uh, very much advocate this uh, with our partners in the European Union. All right, well, let's, uh, this is fascinating the way you, you've put it. Um, let me uh, then, uh, with you, dig into some of the ways, uh, some of the mm -hmm. things that coronavirus has shown yeah. the European Union. I mean, it is very striking that every country chose to do something different in the beginning. 
um, and really markedly different. Uh, almost like a European laboratory. All right, the whole world is, in a, in, a, in a sense, a giant experiment with governments deciding to do different things. But it was very striking, given the ambitions that you just described for the European Union um, to work together, uh, to have kind of common policies on things, that all kinds of things, particularly over travel, uh, were dealt with differently by the countries. I mean, how, how does the, the, the vision that you've described, uh, mm. taking uh, Europe, forward stand up against this very recent test yeah. when countries behaved entirely differently without much mm -hmm. coordination. Thank you very much for the question because I think it's a totally justified question um, and, and allow me to answer it uh, on the basis of, of my own experience in the crisis because then I was still serving in Berlin as permanent secretary uh, and we had a, 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 an emergency task force uh, uh, of various ministries in which I was uh, working from the very first day. I can only say, you know, we were not prepared. So don't believe a story that, you know, Germans were prepared for the crisis. I, I think we were not prepared because we were looking at each other's face. It's all right, and I actually hadn't heard that story. So. The immensity, <laughs> I can yeah. not believe it, but yes, go on. Yeah, the immensity of the task, you know, it, 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 it was, you know, we thought, how do we get through this? And then started to work on it, basically. Um, so take PPE, for instance. In terms of PPE stocks, we were not prepared at all. Um, and we need it. Uh, to make sure that just for the next weeks we would be able to have a sufficient number of PPE. But we realized that there were other states, you know, procuring PPE in the German market at a very, very significant rate and very uh, significant quantity. So what do you do in a situation like this? Do you let things go? Is that responsible government? No, you're basically thrown back because there is no common policy on PPE in the European Union. At that time, uh, there was no common uh, policy on this. Um, so basically you have no chance if you want to act responsibly vis-a-vis -vis, uh, your own people, but to take the steps at the national level. And this is what we did, what France did, what others did. The question is really, how do you feel about it? We felt very embarrassed about it from the very beginning because you could feel, I have to do it, but I don't want to do it. So we immediately, and we as a collective we of the members of the European Union, started a process that we want to redefine it. We want to define a policy uh, that makes it possible to act in solidarity among members and to avoid really uh, that uh, we have the smallest common denominator at the end. And this is, I think, uh, what we achieved. Look at the travel uh, policy now. Um, the first steps which we took for the Schengen area were collective steps anyways with regard to third countries. Internally, it didn't work to the same extent because border controls between member states were very, very different. There was no common policy. But as we are moving out, I think now we have far more defined policies uh, that are very sensitive with regard to the interests of our neighbours. And this is how it should be. And just for the record, was it open to the UK to join our European efforts on PPE once that uh, th those began to come together? As far as I'm informed with regard to one specific activity or programme, yes. And just one, one other uh, difficult example, if, if I might, which is yeah. Hungary. 
and yeah. the emergency powers that it uh, it brought, um, the the the, uh, the government gave itself when the emergency descended. The European Union was um, criticised for not having very much uh, response to this uh, th- this action by one of its members. Obviously, since amen- amended. Yeah. Yeah, we have to work uh, on rule of law standards in the European Union. Uh, We clearly feel because that's the very essence of our value base. And so we need to defend it. We need to operate on its basis. You know, I'm not here to judge uh, whether this or that member is deviating uh, from that basis or that platform, which we have collectively uh, defined for us. Um, For this, we have uh, procedures, we have mechanisms, we have the so-called Article 7 uh, mechanism, which, you know, I'm I'm not sharing a secret with you, doesn't work very well. Um, But uh, we have started, uh, not in the presidency role, but already a while ago, uh, with other members in the European Union, a kind of peer review, voluntary peer review mechanism. Um, And we have made some progress with it. What it takes is constant dialogue because we are an open society. Not everything has to be legally based. It can also be done in the public and political sphere. That's important. But one element we will look at as the presidency very carefully. Uh, There's a proposal of the commission that funds that are being transferred uh, in the context of the multi-annual financial framework, the budget of the European Union, look at uh, cohesion and structural funds, for instance, the money that is being transferred uh, to members, um, that this has to be couched into some kind of conditionality with regard to the rule of law. Why not? We want because we want to reduce the sovereignty Uh, of members who are members in the European Union, but because the money needs to be spent, it's our taxpayers' money also needs to be spent on the basis of clear clear criteria and very clean mechanisms. And for Mm. this, we need the rule of law. So the Commission has made uh, proposals into that direction and we will follow it up positively. Speaking in a sense of, of, of the rule of law, I wonder if you could take us into the, the current discussion about the ruling uh, by the German Constitutional Court uh, and, and the implications for the European Central Bank uh, uh, lending, uh, particularly yeah. the coronavirus. Well, to be very honest with you, there is no discussion anymore. I think uh, it was a surprise when it came and was discussed for a couple of days. Um, But I think we have a very German way of understanding uh, our own uh, constitutional reality here and the Constitutional Court. We take it totally seriously, also in its rulings, uh, but you have to also uh, read the small print and you have to uh, put it into uh, the relevant constitutional framework. So uh, that's uh, a very airy response to your question. Uh, If you draw a line, what it really means is it looks different from what it is, this ruling. This ruling basically, because it could have obliged the Federal Reserve, the Bundesbank, uh, to stop its cooperation uh, with the European Central Bank or to uh, implement certain policies. Uh, The the Constitutional Court very clearly uh, didn't rule in this way. So what the Constitutional Court would like to have is an explanation and a weighing uh, uh, of of certain options with regard to the policy uh, that was conducted or implemented in 2015 by the ECB. I know that sounds totally technical, but what it really means is 
that all the rulings of the European Court uh, are legally binding in Germany and not challenged uh, by the Constitutional Court. So from that point of view, some of the excitement uh, which, I, which, which I could observe and follow in some of the neighboring countries um, is not necessarily shared when it, when it comes to our discussion. No, no, no that's, that's fascinating. I'll, I'll make a point of that. Um, these are internal questions, if you like, to the EU, but you mentioned some of the external ones, and in particular yeah. China uh, and Germany was, I mean, early, very early in helping its businesses uh, set up set up footholds within China. Going, this is going back decades, uh, and has has always, um, you know, uh, extended those ties with China. How um, is Germany going to pursue this under the presidency? Well, it is one of the um, priorities uh, of our presidency uh, to work on the relationship between the European Union and China. A lot needs to be done. Uh, we had hoped to be able to organize a summit with China uh, in Leipzig in the, in, uh, during the month of September. Uh, because of the corona situation, we will not be able to organize it uh, during that month, which uh, we very much regret. But it's important to explain the philosophy of the summit. Um, if you look of, at cooperation between uh, European member states, member states of the European Union and China, um, you uh, very uh, quickly come across the 17 plus 1 or 19 plus 1 format, uh, which China has created to deal uh, with things European in that regard. And, you know, we, we looked at it for many, many years now for this uh, format of cooperation. Uh, and of course, you ask yourself the question, why do you have to create something that is different from the community of 27 member states that is dealing with China? And we came to the result, you know, um, take it seriously, you know, because we conducted interviews uh, uh, with various levels of government in the countries that participate and enjoy participating in the 17 plus one format. And the answer was always the same. It's critically important for investment. It's critically important for face time because otherwise, look at the Baltic states. A Baltic state does not necessarily have the face time with he uh, or Li Keqiang uh, that larger uh, uh, members of the European Union may enjoy. And we have to take that seriously. That's a totally legitimate and important uh, concern. So what we wanted to do with the format uh, in Leipzig was to create 27 plus China, which is different from what normally happens. Normally it's the institutions and the presidency uh, that engage with China. But we wanted to combine the quality time aspect from a national point of view with a unity approach of the European Union. And unity, I think, that is very much what we as the presidency would like to work on, because the relationship to China is absolutely crucial in terms of the dependency, technological dependency that is increasing, growing as we speak, but certainly also economic and financial dependency on China, which we shouldn't be little. Um, we have now started over the last, I would say, one and a half, two years, we've started to look at the downside of dealing with China 
And there is a downside, which is already built in in the asymmetrical relationship that exists. Size-wise, China is so much bigger than each of us. So if you do business with somebody who is so big, you know, that certainly shames the quality of the relationship. But that takes me back to why it is so important to develop a kind of unified uh, European China policy, uh, because uh, only then will we find ourselves, if at all, in a position uh, to speak to China at eye level. And that is what is required. And we have to do our homework. So we also concentrate on the China homework question at the same time, because in terms of industrial policy, we have made many, many mistakes in the past. Take, for instance, the example of the European rail industry, the fast rail uh, system or fast rail uh, 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 networks that exist mainly in Germany and in France. You know, they compete against each other instead of combining their strength. And according to European competition law, they're not even allowed to go for a merger. So these are questions that have to do with sovereignty. Where are we able to compete even with such a powerful uh, uh, partner like China? That's fascinating, and particularly your point about what it might do to European competition policy and the, the, yeah. the, the sense of, uh, of, of, of companies um, you know, within the European Union. What does it do, though, to European Union's relations with the United States? where we may or may not get uh, a new president in November. But either way, it seems to me, uh, there is such a degree of apprehension within the United States and particularly within Washington and Congress about the rise of China, about the antagonistic moves it's made in its, 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 its neighborhood. Um, uh, and um, one that really stretches across both political parties. And um, Surely that then uh, colours the US's uh, relations with the EU if it sees the EU uh, very determined under the German presidency to to um, keep up a closer dialogue with China. Yes, but, um, you know, it's difficult to be short on this one because um, I think we've had, you know, hours and hours of most interesting conversation with our transatlantic partners on the China question. Um, there are differences of interest very clearly, uh, doesn't surprise anybody. Um, but I think I would say it has mainly, you know, if there is tension uh, between the transatlantic or in the transatlantic uh, partnership with regard to China, uh, it is due to a policy uh, on the US side, uh, which is, you know, flat foot on the accelerator. Uh, this is how I would describe it. You know, it's uh, you. We feel when it comes to China, um, you know, you have to be very, very uh, uh, kind of specific. Uh, what element of policy? Uh, how you're turning the vectors uh, in this, and that creates almost a complex network. I would say this is almost by definition a European way uh, of looking at things. It's not black and white. It's a lot of grey uh, when it comes to this. And we have to be very careful because also I'm not saying that uh, we are overlooking that we are overlooking the dangers that are implicit in dealing you know, with this uh, with this partner that is not a democracy that does not share you know, our values like the US does uh, share values with us. Mm. Um, but if the US has decided to have a relatively 
simple China policy uh, that exists, you know, in the binary code of black and white, that is certainly not the China policy uh, that would fit the European uh, interest. And that's why we need to uh, need to discuss. And I think what is totally out of place is that we are suddenly urged or commanded to adopt certain elements of policy uh, which are not decided in Europe, but are decided in Washington, because that is a problem in the transatlantic dimension at the moment when you look at the sanctions regimes that are rolled out um, and uh, are not, you know, are not respecting uh, uh, what I call European sovereignty. What would you say to the American jibe, uh, more explicit under this president than before, but, but there for some years, is Germany now going to contribute more to its defence? Well, definitely, because our GDP uh, uh, will decrease, so we are closer to the 2%. This is exactly the answer I would never have wanted to give the US side, but it's a statistical effect, you know, because we will continue the level of our expenditure, but because our GDP, Corona related, will decrease significantly, well, you know, we are really moving up. Uh, all right, all right. that's a bigger percent. percentage, but that's not more money. <laughs> which no, is but that's, but that's sorry, sorry to say, because we always said, you know, don't look at the 2%. That's not the story because our GDP was increasing enormously. Mm. You know, we had really, really good years before Corona hit us. And during those years, it wasn't easy, even if you decided to pour a lot of money into your defense and go up. So the graph really, really moved up, you know, but at the same time, because GDP is growing, uh, you just don't make it towards the 2% in the, in, in the way that is appreciated by the US. So I hope you find a way of actually looking at, you know, what we spend on defense, and we have taken very important decisions in that regard because we have really, really Im improved our defense expenditure. Uh, and at the same time, we are also going for significant structural changes when it comes to equipment and the structure of our forces. And where does this put the UK? Are the UK outside the EU? What does the EU want from the UK in terms of its its foreign and security relationships? We really, really um, uh, depend on uh, this exceptional quality uh, of the UK uh, as a defence and security actor, no question. Um, but we do cooperate, uh, we do uh, work with the UK uh, within NATO, so that's not changing. The question really is, and we wanted to discuss this from the very beginning of the uh, uh, discussions and negotiations about the future relationship, we wanted to discuss the question how uh, uh, the UK relates uh, to CSDP structures uh, in the future. And uh, the answer was, uh, we don't want to discuss it. Uh, yeah, we were the UK's line, and Michel Barnier has found it a point of frustration all the way through. Yeah. yeah, but it's also a point of frustration if you go to the Bundestag, our parliament, and speak to members of parliament, they tell you the same story. They don't understand why there is no willingness to discuss it. It may be that, you know, at a later stage, uh, uh, we can do it and we are not losing in terms of quality. Um, but this is certainly one aspect uh, with, of the relationship uh, that is particularly important to us. Take, for instance, one area on which, uh, for reasons of migration and security and economic development, we have refocused our attention in Germany, and that is uh, the Sahel area in Africa, 
which is crucially important in security terms. We have never been there. It was always a French job, you know, to be a security provider. The UN then stepped in with various missions, uh, but the European Union is also very, very present in this part of Africa. And uh, we take a very active role uh, in the missions uh, of the European Union that are training uh, police, that are training armed forces uh, in these countries, from Burkina Faso to Niger and Mali. And uh, we feel this, and I think it's also shared uh, in Whitehall, uh, we very much, uh, you know, kind of feel that this is something where the UK uh, should 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 move with us shoulder to shoulder. So that's one area where it really counts how well, our I, future. I, I, I quite take that example, but what I'm thinking of as you're talking is the outrage in the European Union that there was when Theresa May said very early on mm -hmm. the Brexit referendum, well, look, uh, Britain's strength and security and intelligence is going to be a bargaining chip. And yeah. a great uproar saying, look, this kind of thing is too important. This is about our collective good. You can't have that as a bargaining chip in a negotiation. And so in a way, you know, we have uh, we have the UK position now that that, that separates these things. It's mm -hmm. a, we discussed that separately. So I, 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 I must say, I can see where the UK position has mm. come from. Um, but what I'm saying is we are losing precious time. Sorry, yeah. we're losing precious time because that's why I picked uh, the Sahel region an area in which we yeah. were not particularly active in the past, but need to be active as of now. Well, we had the announcement over the weekend uh, uh, that the government is appointing David Frost, the uh, Brexit negotiator, as the national security advisor. So is this a step of enormous efficiency, bringing all these issues together? Is it your wish come true? It's not for me to judge. It's not for me to judge. Um, we run a different system of government, uh, so it's really uh, for the uh, for the British government uh, to see how it works. Um, and, you know, reform by itself, I think, is a positive step forward. You should not remain idle when it comes to this. Okay, well, very diplomatic. There's going to be an IFG comment on uh, on this kind of thing, but we're wondering whether the uh, mm. National Security Advisor role is quite going to have the force that it did uh, did yeah. previously. Let me, um, we've now got some, uh, Ambassador, thank you very much indeed for those mm -hmm. uh, uh, those answers. We've now got some questions coming in from people. So let me um, fire one or two at you, if that's all right. And from Tony Lloyd, MP, wondering if you could say more about Germany's role in Europe's collective defence and security, just following from the points that we have, have been discussing. Yeah, I think, uh, thank you very much for the question. Um, you know, um, Collective security uh, is, is, is really, uh, in the strict sense, only being realized uh, within NATO. Um, so our NATO policy, I think, here is, is very uh, important. And uh, after the Wales summit, uh, we did not just uh, focus on the 2% uh, uh, guideline or, or target. Uh, we also uh, contributed significantly to the enhanced forward presence uh, of NATO uh, in, in uh, the East uh, to us. Um, I think um, in terms of contributions, uh, we are uh, trying to do what is possible and necessary, which is far more than we have done uh, in the past, because we are the pendulum swings back towards uh, territorial defense uh, in an important way within NATO uh, from many other missions uh, where uh, it was rather about the ability to have fast moving uh, forces. 
Um, and, you know, the German uh, post-war uh, security reality during the Cold War was always shaped by territorial defense. So that is certainly mm. an area uh, where our forces are prepared for and where we would like to contribute. Thanks very much indeed for that. I've got another one from Adam Payne from Business Insider. Just picking up on, on our discussion uh, about the, the Germany and the US. And he's arguing that Germany's relationship with the US looks strained at the moment, with Trump withdrawing troops from Germany and the White House seemingly excluding Germany from talks it's hosting between Serbia and Kosovo, for example. And he'd like to know how you, uh, whether you could expand a bit on Germany's relationship with the US at the moment and whether it's getting worse. I, I think realize, I realize you are the ambassador to the UK, but uh, <laughs> oh yes, oh yes, all these questions. All these questions. It's part of German foreign policy that is also um, and needs to be. I mean, given the importance of the relationship between the UK and the US, uh, that's something uh, that uh, is legitimately uh, reflected on uh, here in London as well. Yes, and um, we're, we're making good use of your past as the permanent secretary to Germany's a foreign minister, modest ministry. Yeah. No, I would say, I would say, um, you know, I, I, I want to be honest, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly uh, not easy. Um, but what is easily underestimated is the dependency uh, which exists, you know, in terms of our uh, security needs uh, on the on the US. And by the same token, our willingness also, uh, given the value base, uh, to have this very special relationship the US is our most important partner outside the European Union, no question, okay? So that needs to be stressed before you answer in an honest way, uh, because we've, you know, you, you've referred, uh, referred to some, there were others uh, that could be mentioned. Uh, we've seen irritations uh, in, the, in the relationship. And I've mentioned, you know, uh, as an example, uh, the question of uh, um, secondary effect of U.S. sanctions regimes on, for instance, decisions you take with regard to your energy supply, um, and 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 that is something that makes uh, life uh, sometimes uh, uh, across the Atlantic uh, more difficult. Um, but we are. Uh, you know, really, really investing into the relationship um, to an extent, uh, it's not always visible, to an extent um, that we can keep it, you know, as stable as it is at the moment. Um, with all the shortcomings in terms of information policy, uh, things are being decided and not consulted before, so this untidiness that has crept into uh, the relationship. That is certainly something uh, that worries us, where we would like to make that extra step forward and say, you know, let's work and let's uh, uh, cooperate on the basis of the trust and, and, and the quality of relationship uh, which, we have, which we have enjoyed uh, in the past. But the centrality, especially as a security actor of the US, uh, is not in question. When it comes to economic, uh, when it comes to economic questions, again, um, then, you know, my impression is there is, you know, there are two teams uh, on the US side um, who compete with each other. There is a team that says, you know, economic relations are mainly shaped now. Uh, referring back uh, to the negotiations between the UK and the European Union, 
by framework agreements with regard to trade and investment. And the rest is a question of the market and the strength of the companies and the competition, etc. That is certainly for a free market economy country like Germany and the, you know, I suppose the UK, that is what we stand for. But there is another group, another group that is uh, uh, trying uh, to uh, arrange for business deals that are uh, organized, uh, that are uh, kind of uh, uh, prepared uh, in a way that does not su suit the fairness conditions at which uh, uh, we strive when we set the frameworks right. So how we cope, you know, under these pressures, that's very much uh, uh, shapes the reality uh, uh, at the moment in the transatlantic. Okay, thank you for that. Another one from Anna Tielmer saying uh, that you, Ambassador, have talked about Germany playing a moderator role. I'm going to assume this is about Brexit. Can we rely on Chancellor Merkel to intervene if negotiations are stuck? Well, at the end of the day, it will be all members of the European Union. You have an interest in producing a success. So all of us uh, will, in the end, stick our heads together and see how we can uh, uh, secure a positive outcome here. Um, I can only say, you know, looking at some of the uh, uh, negotiation boxes or the fields that are uh, uh, relevant here, uh, for us, uh, speaking collectively now, uh, level playing field uh, is a very, very important area. And that has not really been touched in the way it should have been touched in the past. So if at the end of the day, there is no willingness to even address it, how are we going to rescue negotiations that have never really started? So now is the time to really, really move forward and secure a result uh, that, as I've said earlier, uh, is a win-win under the present conditions. Um, we are certainly not uh, uh, transforming the economic relationship between the UK and us into something uh, that is improving the present status quo. We have, like Michel Barnier rightly says, uh, on so many occasions, we have to live with the fact that on the 1st of January, we most likely uh, will be confronted with a minus uh, under all conditions. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that is something that worries us. That is something that will be very important when it comes to the question how we shape our bilateral relationship to the UK. We've got another one from Dr. Philippa Whitford moving to the Middle East, saying there is a high possibility that Israel begins legislation to facilitate annexation of almost one third of the West Bank in just two days' time. In view of this threat, she argues, uh, to stability in Israel and the region, do you think that the EU countries will be able to work together to come up with a unified and effective response? My answer is I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it is uh, when it comes to the uh, common foreign uh, and security policy of the European Union, um, I think the most important challenge uh, to unity in the past has been the question uh, of the relationship between Israel and Palestine. We've seen, you know, uh, things fall uh, uh, out uh, on, on, on various occasions. So I, my answer is straightforward. I don't know. We will see. It should be. We should preserve unity. 
Um, but uh, given you know the camps that already exist, it will be a very, very difficult task, clearly. Agreed. Um, we also have several people asking, really quite a few people asking, uh, and there's a broad question, where Germany would see the strategic relationship with the, the UK in five or ten years time, we can manage to parachute ourselves the other side of Brexit. Well, that's, um, you know, one of the aspects um, which uh, we discuss when we look at the question of how our, you know, as a, our uh, relationship, our bilateral relationship with the UK will look like uh, not just in 10 years time, but already starting uh, in, in 2021. Um, there, you know, are two different um, sides, really. Um, one is, um, you know, the more structured, uh, more organized uh, uh, side of things, uh, science cooperation, for instance, you know, Crucially important. I mean, I couldn't believe when how much feedback we receive from universities um, who uh, have developed research clusters. Now, looking at German and and, and British universities, uh, who who send the message, you know, um, um, only love will tear us apart. You know, it's uh, it's it's this kind of you know uh, feeling uh, uh, which you which which you realize. Uh, requires a lot of investment in terms of research and, 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 and scientific cooperation. Um, and, you know, that is by definition very much a win-win situation. So we want to continue this. At the same time, it's not clear and will come up in negotiations uh, to what extent as a third country, the UK will be able to participate in the Horizon Programme, which is the research programme of the European Union, uh, which runs for a number of years. And I think, you know, many of these clusters we're looking at are not just dependent on national funding, but also on European funding in or order to cooperate. This is something we want to preserve, where we look very carefully at you know, whatever the result of the uh, uh, negotiations will be, that is something where we have to take active steps uh, to preserve it and 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 even deepen it uh, in the future. It's a, another question: what will happen uh, to the civil society relationship? Because that's usually not as organised and. You know, it's it's also a cultural thing uh, when you don't discuss the same political questions to the extent you have discussed them in the past, it's certainly affecting the kind of civil society relationship which is so important. And in the case of Germany, I must say, you know, I'm, I'm a member of the generation that grew up with British neighbours because there was a British military hospital just around the corner to where I grew up. So we're, we were exposed to British culture and you know British ways of life to an extent this young generation in Germany is not exposed anymore so uh, I, I would very much as an ambassador uh, try to stimulate also civil society contacts and that does not just apply I presume in the case of Germany I think this applies in the case of many member states in the European Union we need to keep our civil societies in contact and in touch. That's that's without this, I think, it will be very difficult uh, to develop, you know, the relationship uh, uh, with stimuli 
that's that by itself for the economy or for for science uh, is not going to work. Well, that's a lot of talk and hope about about collaboration there. Though there was obviously an early decision by the EU not to include uh, the UK in in Galileo, uh, mm-hmm. which is still stinging uh, uh, for the UK, uh, despite the UK's past financial contributions to that, and, and the UK is now having to try and find um, uh, backups or replacements for that. Not with a huge success so far, it seems. Um, does does the reality and the sort of a sourness of some of this uh, cut across what you've just been arguing? Well, you know, with regard to this decision, um, I I see your point. This is what I would like to say. Um, But then again, sometimes circumstances and legal frameworks are difficult. But I can understand how the UK came out of this and how how you feel on the British side about it. But like you've said, you know, um, and like I've said just now, uh, it's a way of how we look at each other. And that's, you know, uh, 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 not a material question. That is very much a question that has to do with the way uh, uh, our, our, our cultural environment uh, develops against the backdrop uh, of the withdrawal uh, from the European Union. Um, and uh, I can only say whatever, because, because we, we in Germany um, are supporting also in this crisis are supporting our cultural industry uh you know really extensively uh, this is something which we need to continue also in the in the in the months uh, ahead of us and uh, you know with the means available to us this is what we will do but like you've said in the end it depends on each and every person uh, on both sides of the channel thanks for that Quite a few questions come in which are on the same area as things that we've touched on already. Robert Morland, I if you're one on, on Israel. I think we've, we've got as close to that as we can. A slightly different one, though, from Emilio at Politico. Uh, can we expect Angela Merkel to be talking to Boris Johnson about the Brexit negotiations more frequently while Germany holds the presidency? I can't say. I can't say. I, I'm, not, I, I'm not in the position anymore. Uh, to ask my colleague, colleagues at the Chancellor's office what her schedule looks like. I can't. We've got another one uh, from I- IFG, um, uh, from Georgina Wright, saying that Germany and France have mooted the idea of European Security Council with the UK at the table. Could that work? From the very start, I thought it's an interesting object of discussion. And uh, you could hear when I spoke about uh, the UK's importance uh, as a security actor that I rated very high. Um, And uh, it certainly is something uh, which we should not lose sight of and various uh, options for also uh, including the UK uh, without compromising uh, uh, the structural internal uh, setup uh, in that in that uh, sector on the on on the side of the European Union, I think it's worth discussing it. Thanks, and we've got one challenging you on your view about uh, prioritizing trade with China or, or accusing Germany of putting the, that uh, that interest ahead of human rights and democracy, um, uh, and wondering whether Germany in the presidency might. Um, might approach the relationship with China, trying uh, uh, particularly to pursue uh, questions of human rights and, for example, over Hong Kong. Yeah, but we haven't done it in the past. And um, it's it's a question of, 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 of how you 
how you approach the Chinese. Um, you know, uh, we, ha we, we have addressed Hong Kong and uh, Xinjiang in the past as very important uh, issues in the relationship. And um, there were two promising uh, uh, steps recently um, that also showed that when it comes to the human rights aspects of the relationship of Europe or the European Union with China, uh, unity can work because uh, quite surprisingly we were able as Europeans to agree on relevant uh, human rights uh, uh, sanctions and uh, not sanctions, sorry, uh, resolutions. Um, so there is a platform from which we can obviously operate jointly as, as members of the European Union. Uh, and that has to include the human rights dimension, no question. And um, we're really coming to the end of this now. Thank you. It is, it is the curse of these things. That lots of terrific questions start flooding in towards the end. So apologies to those I couldn't get in. Let me just ask you, Ambassador, no one could accuse you of not having um, travelled around the country so far because it's been impossible during lockdown. But I wondered what you were going to do to take account of the fact that the UK is very much uh, um, a country with devolved nations within it. And um, and that's really, uh, we've seen that in coronavirus as, as Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland have gone their own ways to some extent. And what, what, um, what effect that has on Germany's, you know, approach to the UK, you, you know, including in some aspects of the Brexit negotiations? Yeah, I'm still learning, I must say. Um, uh, I was surprised, for instance, um, in a positive way by learning um, how uh, far-reaching in terms of geography our business interest in this country is. Uh, this I could already learn very early on. Uh, so it's not just focused on London, uh, but because, you know, a lot of German companies uh, um, uh, represent industry. Uh, it includes the Midlands, uh, it goes further north. Um, and uh, um, as I've said, um, I have to learn and uh, we include our Consul General in Edinburgh in every morning meeting uh, we have at the Embassy uh, because it's digital anyways. So we've also learned uh, to improve uh, uh, the the uh, connectedness uh, with our own institutions here in the UK. Mm. Um, and, you know, like you said, uh, it's very, very important. It started with Corona where we had to learn, oh, it's uh, probably more like at home where we have 16 different states who can devise their own Corona policies. Uh, when it comes uh, uh, to uh, um, the UK, it's not just centrally prescribed. And what holds true here, I think, also applies in many other areas. Ambassador, with that, we are going to uh, bring it to a close. But thank you very, very much indeed for joining us. I hope uh, uh, you've had a, a lively first seven weeks. And I hope the uh, rest goes on with uh, just as much interest. Everyone, thank you very much for sending questions, uh, for watching, and thanks to the great IFG team who put this together. Ambassador, thank you. Big thank you, and bye-bye. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more, and if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.